What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, we're speaking with two of the nation's best. Later in the show, Joan Walsh. But first, John Nichols, our man in Madison. Hi, John. Hey, it's great to be with you, my friend. Well, we always said it would take a few days, and it is taking a few days. Uh, but we are speaking at midday on Wednesday. At this hour, we do not have decisions in key states. Biden must win. Let's start with Wisconsin. The New York Times poll, let me just remind you, rated A-plus by Nate Silver a couple of days ago, said Biden was ahead by 11 among likely voters. The Washington Post poll, rated A-plus by Nate Silver, said Biden was ahead by 17. I see on the New York Times feed at this moment that Trump is seeking a recount in Wisconsin. I guess that means he thinks he lost. Is that the way you interpret this? Very rare, my friend, for winners to ask for a recount. But in your introduction there, you do get to the heart of the matter. It is very close. And it's certainly a lot closer than those polls suggested. And that's why the wonderful term likely voters was invented. <laughs> because if you, uh, you want to you know, identify the Trump electorate, I think you're going to have to acknowledge that it includes a lot of unlikely voters. And Wisconsin has always been a battleground. It's always been a closely fought battleground. And the one thing that polls struggle to do even now is to get a clear sense of how the excitement and the energy of the close of a campaign can alter its dynamics. And the truth is that uh, while Joe Biden was busy campaigning in Pennsylvania, and that may well have proven to be extremely important, and it's, it's not to diminish that effort, and even went to Ohio, Donald Trump kept coming back to Wisconsin. And I don't think we should underestimate that. He poured energy in, and that energy clearly mobilized a, a portion of people to come to the polls and vote in the, last, in the late stages, and they helped, that helped him a lot. The thing is, it didn't help him enough because the figures that we've got show a roughly 21,000 vote victory for Joe Biden. That will go through the standard review. The election commission will, you know, they, they look at the ballots anyway and, and all that before actually before you even start to worry about recounts. And, and I suspect it will hold up. Because uh, I know it doesn't sound like much, 21,000 votes out of in a state of you know, more than 5 million. But here's a little subtlety, John. Of our last six presidential elections, four of them have been decided by under 25,000 votes. Including wow. That's 2000, wow. 2004, 2016, and now. Only Barack Obama you know, actually produced big wins. And, and one final element that's kind of fun uh, it looks like when everything's tabulated and you sort it all out, Biden's victory this year will be almost exactly the same, his, his margin, as the one that Donald Trump was identifying as part of a landslide back in uh, 2016. Sweet. 
<laughs> well, not far from Wisconsin is Michigan. The yeah. Biden plan, we were told a hundred times on MSNBC last night, was he's got to win Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, and then he's president. Michigan is not another one of the states that at this hour, we the media have not declared a winner. The polls also showed Biden well ahead. What, what do you think about Michigan? What we're looking at in Michigan at this point is a pretty solid Biden lead. You know, it's not overwhelming, but he, as we speak, he is ahead by around 45,000 votes. Now, that, again, in a state of, you know, very large population, you know, you're going to have an electorate there of well over 5 million. 45,000 may not seem like that much, but it's about four times the margin that Trump won the state by in 2016. So, yeah. and, and it, the Michigan total, I think, will grow a good deal. Whereas the Wisconsin total, I think it's pretty well locked in. I think most of what was out has been counted. The Michigan total has, is likely to expand. Uh, and so I think Michigan is kind of moving out of that, even out of the, the recount territory. Uh, and that's, that's significant, but it's also a lesson for us, John. When we, our media is so desperate to sort things out on election night that they, and I saw it last night, they were like coloring states, the color that they think it's going to go. And, and so you saw all these, Michigan was being put in the Trump column at one point. And the truth is, we know it takes time to count a lot of ballots. And it takes time in big cities to do that, especially when you've had a massive uh, absentee ballot vote. And so if we, you know, if we had all went to bed when the polls closed on Tuesday night and just let the <laughs> poll workers do their job through the night and didn't wait for, you know, Trump to say something absurd, we could have woke up uh, this morning and had, you know, relative clarity. Here's what strikes me and lots of other people about this. It's so much like four years ago. The lineup of the states is almost identical. The ones that he won by a little bit, it looks like he's going to lose by not very much. And that will probably make Biden president. Maybe on Friday, we'll know for sure. But this is astounding to me, given everything that has happened in the last four years and especially the last year. You would think that the disastrous handling of the COVID epidemic, you think that the highest unemployment since the 30s, that no incumbent could survive anything remotely like this. And Trump is basically going to get pretty much the same vote that he got four years ago, maybe, uh, maybe a few more. Four years ago, we struggled to understand how could people vote for this guy? And we came up with the story that, well, the Democrats hadn't done enough, hadn't done much for a lot of the white working class in the upper Midwest. And so their attitude was, let's give the other guy a chance. He says he cares about us. But now they've seen him for four years and a lot of people still want him to be president. That's uh that's an amazing and disheartening thing about America, don't you think? Yep, it's daunting. It's a daunting reality. But let's put it in a little bit of perspective. First off, I'm cautious about saying how this whole thing is going to sort out, even now. We've still got a lot of votes to count. And we're watching, you know, literally as this day goes on, I know people may listen to it a little bit down the line, but we're watching an uncertainty as regards Nevada, Obviously, we've still got the Pennsylvania vote to be sorted out. 
Uh, and a lot of questions about Georgia still, which is kind of getting closer. So we've got all this stuff in play. So, you know, I think we are a little cautious about assuming, you know, where it all ends up, who we, you know, say is going to win it. But that's only, and this is the thing I would emphasize, that's only as regards the Electoral College. Because literally, as I was preparing to go on your show, Joe Biden moved above 70 million votes. He now has won the largest number of votes for someone running for president in the history of the country. He also moved above 50% of the vote. And so this isn't like in 2016, where Hillary Clinton had a clear lead in the popular vote, but she didn't have a majority of it. We now have somebody who's already, just hours after the polls closed, you know, moved into A, largest number of votes ever cast for somebody for president, B, has a majority of the votes, and both of those are going to exponentially grow. So it is important to understand that Joe Biden is very likely to win the presidency of the United States but on, the, on the popular vote side, right? Again, we're not even declaring the Electoral College. We're not going to go there. But on the popular vote side, he will win by a, with a majority, perhaps a quite substantial majority, and a, a popular vote margin that could extend to five, six, seven, maybe even eight million votes. I don't know if it'll get quite that high, but it'll be overwhelming. And so, but in any country around the world, you would say that this guy was repudiated, right? He was, he was swept out of office. And yet in the United States, we, we have a media and a political class that is complicit to the lie of the electoral college, right? And we say, well, doesn't none of all this other stuff talking about that that majority vote, talking about that huge number of votes, that's secondary to whether, you know, something, whether we can make sure we got the right count in Ozaki County, Wisconsin. <laughs> and I love Ozaki County, Wisconsin, but with all due respect, it's really no better than Hennepin County, Minnesota. Hennepin but, County elected Ilhan Omar. So I was uh, going to say, I'm, <laughs> I'm leaning toward Hennepin there. So I, maybe yes. I'm looking for a better analogy. Maybe, you know, we find a California County, but bottom line is, the Electoral College does us so much damage because it makes us ask the question you just asked. Why wouldn't America repudiate Donald Trump? Well, we're on track to America repudiating Donald Trump quite clearly. And yet we have this, this arcane relic of a time when white men set up barriers to democracy because many of them were slaveholders now remaining in this time a barrier to democracy. Thank you for that, John Nichols. Uh, and let's talk about the other things that didn't happen on Election Day that we were told to worry about. We didn't have armed right-wing militias outside the polling places in Black neighborhoods intimidating people, or maybe violence at polling places, or maybe people being shot, or maybe people being killed trying to vote. We didn't have chaos in the streets. We didn't have waves of looting here and in, in uh, we record our show in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills boarded up uh, all of Rodeo Drive, America's luxury shopping district, closed it for three days uh, in the anticipation that somehow people would, you know, raid luxury, luxury retail stores in, in on election day. As I experienced election day, it was a completely normal election day. There was, you know, the usual shenanigans uh, on here and there. We did not have chaos in the streets. We did not have armed intimidation. We had a regular election yesterday. Relatively regular. I think that the Trump campaign sought to intimidate people and sought to suppress the vote 
on, on many, many different levels. And one of the levels that's much covered is, of course, the legal strategies that they engaged in and tried to literally change the voting rules as things were going on. They did have observers, quote unquote observers, who were you know around apparently looking for something that, that was amiss at polling places. And so they, they did a little. But yeah, you're right. A lot of the, the things that we thought might be possible didn't happen. For the Trump campaign, I think it's still, that's all part of, uh, you know, an intimidation strategy. And, and they talked it up, the fact that, that some of their followers didn't do it, or the president's followers didn't do it, uh, we can be thankful for, but we should also understand that that's all part of it even now that we continue yeah. to have this sense of what will the president do? What will he say? What will his supporters do? How will they respond? And, and again, that takes us back to the reality that Biden's got Biden's going to end up with a very substantial margin, not as substantial as it should be because of all the wrongs that Trump has done, but a substantial margin. And yet we, we fear chaos and uncertainty, you know, in these individual battlegrounds, because you have to somehow get to this electoral college majority. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I think is, that is driven home in some very, very powerful ways by the 2020 election is that we have a, a incredibly ill-defined and dysfunctional election system in the United States of America. And the notion that you can, A, have legal threats, you know, literally going up to hours before the polls open and all the sort of, that a, that a candidate can create a legal chaos uh, is really problematic. We ought to have a set of rules that are very clear. They ought to be put in place. And, and frankly, we ought to have a standard that says, you know, unless you've got some sort of, something that is sort of unimaginably significant, you don't talk about changing the rules for the, the months before an election. You want to yeah. you want to have a, a, a stability and a clarity. And the same goes for security for elections. You know, we we should have an absolute sense that people can vote safely, no matter where they live, that communities, uh, particularly people of color, immigrants and others won't feel threatened at, when they are making their plans to vote. And that that cities, you know, in my city of Madison, the police and other people were on kind of like alert, you know, yeah. going toward the election. I'm sure that was true in LA and other places. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is all an extension of strategies by politicians and our elections ought to be free from that. We ought to have yeah. a, a basic standard. So that's my bottom line. And I think we do take a lesson from it. Great. New topic, money. Apparently money isn't everything. Michael Bloomberg spent a hundred million dollars in Florida and, uh, Biden didn't win in Florida. The um, two Senate candidates in North Carolina, I read, spent $242 million just on TV ads. Mm -hmm. Do you have any comment? Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm afraid, you know, we're at a point when journalism is in crisis in this country and our sources of information are, you know, diminished on a regular basis as newspapers struggle to survive. And, and yet we have this massive flow of money into lies, negative ads, things that are actually meant to suppress the vote quite often. And, and so we have a, a really dysfunctional system in this country as regards campaign finance. You're right. Uh, a lot of the money didn't work this time, but I can point to a lot of places where money did work at the end of the day. And, and I still think we need to set up a dramatically different system where, frankly, we spend a lot less money, but our TV networks, as an example, and our social media platforms have requirements on them for the, you know, they have, they've got a license to print money almost, right? Yeah. We ought to make a few demands. And one of the demands ought to be that there's free airtime 
and that it, it operates, you know, I would argue more on the model that you see in European countries, uh, particularly Scandinavia and Germany, where, you know, they, they actually basically have a structure set up to get a lot of honest, serious debate and, and real expression of policy positions and things like that. We leave it to the free market and the market has decided that the way you run a campaign is with vicious negative ads that, that actually do cause a substantial number of people quite often to turn away in disgust from the process. So uh, we saw that in play this year. We still got an incredibly high turnout this year, looking like you know record number of people voting. But I would argue that the reason for that was in, in a way voting against, a lot of voting against rather than voting yeah. for. Yeah. And so our, our system, there's so many things that we look at in 2020 and should say, hold it, we ought to do this way better. And there are systemic problems. I know the desire, and I'm guilty of it quite often, desire to blame Donald Trump for everything that is amiss in this country. And if there's any little bit left, then we can blame Tom Cotton. And, you know, <laughs> but the bottom line is that, you know, there's, we, we like to personalize it, but we have systemic problems in this country with the electoral college, with the lack of stability for our elections, the lack of, of set rules, the money in politics, the way that media um, you know, uses as a you know, money-making strategy rather than, than anything to promote civic life. We've got a lot of problems. And one of the reasons I wish that we had a much clearer result from this year was that so uh, Congress and, and a, a new president could actually get to work addressing yeah. some of that. And I have to, one final bit here, you gotta flip the Senate. Let's talk about the Senate. We. The Democrats needed three new three. They got Colorado and Arizona, but we lost North Carolina. We had hopes in Iowa. We had hopes in Maine. So now it comes down to special election in Georgia in January. What do you make of the defeats this time when so much energy and so much money went into those? And some of those candidates were pretty darn good. So first off, one little bit of counsel to you. When you're trying to flip the Senate in the United States, if you're really, you know, you got a lot of big hopes on Kansas and Montana and Alaska to come through for you, more power to you. I love you for your optimism. But um, there were quite a few states where, you know, you were really looking at pretty tall climbs. These are states that were going to vote overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, and somehow they were going to give you a, a Democratic senator. A couple of those candidates still did really well, but, you know, it's just the amount of space they had to make up was overwhelming. I would also look at Georgia, as I mentioned a moment ago, there's no question that uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock will be in a special election runoff with uh, Kelly Leffler, the appointed senator there. And, uh, and Warnock is one of the most striking candidates. I have, I, he's, he has come on very strong. He rose very fast at the end of the campaign as people got to know him better. Uh, and I, still, I think that's a real significant race. You think 240 million in North Carolina is something? Let me tell you about like 500 million in Georgia. And, and one last thing, the, um, there, were, there were a lot of impressive wins for uh, progressives on initiatives. A $15 yep. minimum wage got a super majority in Florida. Colorado voted for paid family and medical leave. Nebraska reduced consumer loan uh, interest. And Arizona, I think, is taxing the rich to pay for education. 
you would think the Democrat, the Democratic candidates in those places might have done better, especially in Florida. I really believe that the $15 thing in Florida would would put Biden over the top. It's interesting that voters are willing in Florida willing to vote for a $15 minimum wage, but not for Joe Biden. Well, or let's put it another way, they're willing to vote for $15 minimum wage and Donald Trump, oh. um, who, who runs screaming from the room when you mentioned $15 minimum wage. Yeah. Um, and so, no, look, this is, this is a really, really serious issue for the Democratic Party. I wrote a book about, you know, the fighting for the soul of the Democratic Party. And my argument there uh, is that the Democratic Party doesn't go big when it should. And, you know, might it have helped in Florida if, Every, you know, if the ads all were all said, vote for Joe Biden and a $15 minimum wage, maybe you link these things up. And, and when you de-link and when you go soft and when you, as Joe Biden did campaign, you know, as somebody who's going to wear a mask and not not send nasty tweets, you know, that's good. But maybe if you put a few more things onto that list and you emphasize them. Democratic platform this year is pretty good. But how much talk was there about that, that full platform? And how many times in debates did Joe Biden tell us, well, I'm not Bernie Sanders. I'm not a socialist. I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Well, maybe if you said I am a few times, it might actually help. And uh, the only final thing I'd give on the as regards to referendums, because I think your, your rundown is good. And the Florida one is very unsettling. I, I plan to write about that. You know, Trump is running as a culture warrior. Right. And, and really, you know, living off the, the votes of, of very, very socially conservative people. And uh, yet one of the most popular things on the ballot around the country is legalization of marijuana and actually decriminalization of drugs in general. As we saw, you know, the Oregon vote is, is quite fascinating. And the, the reason I would emphasize that is, again, I think the Democratic Party has to wrap its head around the fact that on a host of issues, uh, people have really moved to a new place. And that new place is one where Democrats should talk about it. And frankly, there are a lot of votes to, to be gotten, perhaps, by being the party that advocates for a much more liberal view as regards marijuana, decriminalization of drugs, and at the heart of it, much more important, much more seriously, uh, a real reframing of how we do criminal justice in the United States. The indispensable John Nichols. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. And I will remind you that Minnesota went big for Joe Biden. Now it's time to speak with Joan Walsh. Of course, she's the nation's national affairs correspondent and a political commentator for CNN. Hi, Joan. Hi, John. Well, we're speaking on Wednesday afternoon. You've been telling us for months that it would take several days before we knew for sure who the winner was, and you're certainly right about that. We don't yet have decisions at this hour about several key states Biden must win, but at this hour, it looks like Biden is likely to prevail in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, maybe more, and that should make him president. But but it feels so much like four years ago. The same states are voting the same way. The only difference is the states that Trump won by just a little. Now Biden is going to win by just a little. For me, it's too much deja vu. I wonder if you have the same feeling. Oh, my God. I so do. I totally do. I mean, it, 
last night was really hard and I forced myself to go to bed at about two. And, and even then I, I, I believe he will win. I do. Um, and I woke up at like five or six and I watched again and, it, and it's like, I believe he will win, but it's going to be so close and it shouldn't be close. I mean, and we've all been luxuriating in these polling numbers that showed him winning Texas and, you know, just winning everything. And it, we all got a, a little comfortable, I guess. I mean, I tried not to, and I tried to, I tried to resist that, but you know, to see it be this close, it should not be this close. Four years ago, we were shocked and horrified, but we came up with this, I, this understanding that for, especially for white working class people in oh, yeah. the upper Midwest who the Democrats really hadn't changed their lives very much at all. And their attitude was, you know, let's give the other guy a chance. He claims to be interested in us. Let's see what he can do. But now they've seen for four years, they saw what he could do. They saw that he was a complete disaster with the COVID epidemic. They've seen right. the, the highest unemployment rate since uh, the 30s. And most of them are still voting for him. And that's that's very hard for us to take. It is. I mean, can I just say what I said back then? I think it's mostly racism. I think he was the first presidential candidate to actually appeal to people on the basis of white nationalism. You know, people don't like the word racism, but white nationalism. We had not, we'd never seen that before. I mean, Mitt Romney was kind of awful and played along with Trump's birtherism. You know, I wrote about that in my book. Like he literally made Trump more of a figure by his endorsement, but Trump was the first person to say, I see you, white nationalists, white people who feel under siege by this wave of color, not the blue wave, but the, you know, multiracial wave. I see you and I'm here for you. And we'd never had a, 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 a Republican like that. And we got one and he won. And He's not going to win again. I mean, John, I hope I'm right. I hope I'm right. It's very close. It should not be this close, as I wrote today in The Nation. But I don't think he's going to win, but it's going to go on for a while. And it's because he, he appealed to this feeling that even though I wrote that book about white people, I had no idea it was this prevalent. And I'm so shocked by this election result. Well, let me try out on you, John Nichols' response to this. Uh, John, <laughs> Nichols, John Nichols says, Joe Biden already has more than 70 million votes. That's the largest number of votes for a president in American Ever. history. Ever. He, he may end up with four or five million more votes than Trump. He's also, second major fact, he's also above 50%. This is very unusual in our lifetime. Hillary only got 48. Obama really is the only Democrat who's ever gotten above 50% uh, 
in our uh, lifetime. In, in our in our lifetime, Bill Clinton never got close to fifty percent. No? So so this is a big victory. The most votes any president has ever gotten. The first Democrat to get over fifty percent since since, and the only other one in addition to Obama. There's only one thing that makes it not a big victory, and that's the electoral college. That's where it's close. That's our problem. That's what we have to change. Right. Well, you know, I love John Nichols and he literally called me this morning to bust me up. <laughs> I think he's going to win. If he wins, he'll win the Electoral College too. But, you know, if we don't win the Senate, if Democrats don't win the Senate, that will be also really deflating. I mean, there's so much about this that is deflating because 235,000 people have died. What do we have to do to call attention to that. And thousands of families at the border have been separated. What do we have to do to call attention to that? What did we not do? And I have people texting me and emailing me, and I'm just not writing them back, who are like, oh, Biden should have done this and that. But I think that Biden and, and, and Kamala Harris did, did a lot of it, did most of it. I hope we can call them a minority but a really, really entrenched, sad, desperate, horrible minority. Um, the people who came out, who goes to the Mario Cuomo Bridge in New York and you know stops traffic, who drives a Biden-Harris bus off the road, who goes to Marin City, which is the only tiny pocket of black people in Marin, the, the Trump people did that. So, you know, we, I feel like we're lucky we didn't see that much of that. But I think we're going to win, but it's still going to be such a narrow win. It's going to be very, very hard to deal with. So you mentioned the Senate. You know, we have to talk about the Senate. The Democrats needed three. We got Colorado and Arizona. We lost the one. The other ones we were hoping for, North Carolina where we spent a fortune. I know. Uh, we had hopes for Iowa. Seems likely that the fate of the Senate will depend on a special election in Georgia in January. You've spent a lot of time in Georgia. Tell us about Georgia and what's going on there. Which, by the way, at this hour, the New York Times needle is still pointing in the Biden direction. Really? I didn't even, I don't look, I didn't look at the needle. I don't, I hate the needle <laughs> the after four years ago, but thank you for looking. Well, I still think that we can do it in Georgia. I mean, I've been in touch with the Ossoff people and there are a lot of votes out in Atlanta. There are a lot of votes out in Atlanta. And, and let me just other- say Ossoff, Ossoff is challenging Purdue. Purdue. And that's that we could win outright, which would be great. Right. It's the other one, the the open seat that's likely to go. But Reverend Warnock, but you know, well, not but yes, it, that's almost certainly going to go to a runoff. Well, it matters a lot if 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 Ossoff wins. Although, if if Ossoff also goes to runoff, because both things will happen. If there's you know, if Ossoff did, doesn't quite do it, he'll go to a runoff, and. I would like to be around for a January 5th race in Georgia because screw COVID, I would be down there. (laughs) You know, I think all Democrats would be focused on on that. So 
And let's talk about the money here. North Carolina, the two candidates spent $242 million on TV ads. You can imagine what's going to happen in the Georgia, if in a Georgia runoff, $242 million is going to be, you know, they'll probably spend twice that much money. Money is just totally out of control in our politics, don't you think? It is. And, you know, what I when, when I talk to the people that I write about, which is mainly state legislative candidates and their managers, they're not about TV. They're about getting people out. They're about going door to door. And that is, you know, maybe we will find that when we really look at this race, that it was a big problem that our people couldn't go door to door. But I think, you know, if, if we go to a runoff in Georgia, I think there will be more door to door. And, you know, I don't think anyone can prove anything about, you know, the results of TV. I just think we've got a lot of consultants, as you well know, who get a piece of TV. And so they, you know, they're the manager, they're the campaign manager, they're the this manager. And they're like, yeah, let's do, we've got this great ad and we've got this great package for you. And I, I don't see it working. And we certainly didn't see it working in North Carolina. In the one state where there was a, a significant uh, door-to-door effort, Arizona, where Unite Here did yeah. send thousands of people door-to-door, they showed it can be done. They, they wore masks and, and face shields. They distributed masks to the people they were talking to. Arizona is looking very good for very good. Uh, for for the Democrats. So there's yeah. a model there. Yes, and I am so excited about Arizona and Unite Here. I mean, I you know that is one of the great spots of last night, and there will be more. I mean, you know, it's just too early to be as downhearted as I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because your whole message for the last month has been, it's going to take a few days and, you know, be patient and don't get excited. (laughs) But then, you know, in the last few days, people have been like, we might know by Tuesday night. And I, I got into that, you know, John, I'm, I'm normal. I'm just an instant gratification (laughs) person. So if you promise me it's going to happen, I'm going to be there. But Yeah, well, I, I went back to those polls, Wisconsin polls, um, the final Wisconsin polls, New York Times poll rated A plus by Nate Silver, said Biden was ahead by 11 among 11. likely voters. The Washington Post poll rated A plus by Nate Silver, said Biden was ahead by 17 in Wisconsin. Yeah, he's going to win by about 23,000 votes. 23,000 people in Milwaukee who stood out <laughs> in the cold, my, my high school friends. <laughs> what are we going to do when we when we can't trust the polls in two years or four years? I mean, they were better in 2018. And what does that mean? You know, 28, the, the midterm polls predicted a pretty big Democratic win. And that's what happened. And these polls predicted a huge Democratic win and not just presidential, but the Senate and also the House. I mean, Dave Wasserman of Redistrict, I'm not calling him out because I don't like him or I think he's bad. He's great. But he was like the how you know, they're going to Democrats are going to pick up like 15 House seats. So what happened there? So that is going to be a whole different story in terms of how we cover 
these races in the next year or four. I, I, I just don't know. It just, it makes no sense to me. Joan Walsh, she told us to wait and she was right about that. Joan, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. I'm going to try to listen to my own advice. (laughs) Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. (laughs) 